My name is John, and I'm an alcoholic. I'm very enthusiastic about this program. I'm very grateful for this way of life. And uh, uh, and uh, by the way, first I have to thank Maurice Committee for the invitation. And uh, I like to thank Carol and Seppi for picking us up at the airport. And uh, they have taken us around and uh, made us feel really at home. And, and we really feel part of it. I know you have been here for a few days, and uh, I happen to work, so I can't take off and except Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And, and Friday, you know, I am in the building business, and that is kind of martini day, you know. So, so, <laughs> so I can come to these things on Friday. And we started out at a little before 4 o'clock Friday morning, and we had a little problem on the way. But we arrived here at 8 o'clock last night, and we had a, a our fabulous driver there. He just didn't look at the speed limit, but we came here 10 minutes after Jack had started. And it, we always like to go and hear all the other speakers when we come to these things. And, and I, I just love your talk, Jack. You know, there's nothing like an, uh, one alcoholic talking to another. And it's really something to hear a real drunkalogue, you know. It <laughs> makes me feel real good, you know. And, and, and you really set the stage here. We had, it was a wonderful evening for us, and I thank you. And, uh, you know, uh, tomorrow morning you will hear Mildred here, and we have known her for a bunch of years. And uh, you are in for a real treat, you know. And, and uh, Mill, it's good to see you again. You are, they were here this morning and listened to my wife Karen. It's something else, you know. I, I uh, you know, I, I love Alan. I am the guilty one, you know. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it would be very easy for Karen and me to stand up here and talk about my wonderful, sober husband and my lovely Alan and wife, but it really wouldn't do much good for anybody. So we have the period we have been on the program, you know, she tells her story and I tell mine. And, uh, that being a little effective and it will help somebody that everything doesn't fall in place right away and so on and so forth. And I'm so proud of her. And she does a great job mending things between Alan and an AA because it wasn't really like that when we came in. You know, that was, the, the A's were very nervous about these Alanons, you know. But uh, anyhow, there have been a few Alanon speakers that that have mended those things, and, uh, and I'm glad that Karen has been part of that, you know. So, uh, I always have a little hard time to get into this thing, but I, I have to tell you, I have a lot of friends in this room that I love very much, that you have never seen me before in a very short while, you know, will know me very intimately. And that's just one of the neat things in the meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, that we can know each other on that level, you know. And uh, it can't be helped. I've been around for a long time, and I come into these rooms, and there's always somebody that says, oh, him again, you know. <laughs> a while back, I was invited to speak at Flagstaff Convention, and my host, he was an old fellow like myself, and, and I asked him, I said, you know, you invited me here seven years ago, 11 years ago, 19 years ago, and 29 years ago, 27 years ago. I said, why do you invite me again? He said, I wanted to hear you one more time before you die, you know. I, you don't know this, but I'm probably the most famous substitute speaker in Alcoholics Anonymous. 
West Coast. It started long ago. You know, sometimes the circuit speakers are invited to two different locations the same weekend. And 30 years ago, Dr. Paul, you call him, he was only a year sober, but he was already a circuit speaker. And he was invited to Vancouver, Canada, and to Hawaii the same weekend. And his wife, Max, wanted to go to Hawaii. So they said, why don't we send John to Vancouver, you know? And that was my first big deal. I came up to Vancouver, and my host then was Corky Berg. invited picked me up at the airport and we came to this hotel there was 4,500 people there and we stood out in the lobby and everybody milling around and this lady came up to Corky and said hi how are you and he said I'm really fine how are you and she said you don't remember me do you and he said sure honey but I'm rather busy with this gentleman right now so she left and I said Corky she wanted to talk to you you don't have to babysit me. Why don't you go over and talk to her? Everybody are friendly. So he left and came back 10 minutes later. I said, that's the goddamnest thing I've ever run into in my life. I said, what happened? I said, I came over there and said, hi, how are you? And she said, you don't remember me, do you? Sure, honey, what meeting did I meet you at? And she said, for God's sake, man, I was your second wife. You know? <laughs> <laughs> First, I was a little bit of a blackout there. <laughs> I don't think I'm too presumptuous if I say that some of us here tonight sit with a bunch of burdens and lots of ebonies. But be that as it may, we are here in these rooms are still the lucky ones because we have a chance. Lots of people have this thing called alcoholism. That's not a chance and for various reasons. For the record, my grandfather died from alcoholic delirium in 1910. He lived in a 2,000-acre place outside Stockholm. They were breeding racehorses. But he died from alcoholic delirium. My father had a problem with his liver in 1927, and nobody knew anything about his illness then. He was a giant of a man. He radiated vitality. Women adored him. Men envied him. But he died three years later. And he only weighed 130 pounds when he died, and he didn't want to die at all, and he didn't have much of a chance. I was eight years old then, and it is something to see a beautiful human being like he once was. You know, he was six foot two, and when he touched you, you realized his strength, but in three years, he had deteriorated to absolutely nothingness. My father was an aristocrat. He was very vain and proud and arrogant, but he was also a very loving person. But I was in violence, and thanks to our program, I've been able to deal with that. Ninety-nine out of hundred meetings I go to, we finish with the Lord's Prayer, and I a line that says, "Forgiven as I forgive those who trespass against me," and I assure you that I was stuff in my inventory I wish I could be forgiven about. And then we can't have two standards here. I'm supposed to be forgiven. I'm supposed to have an opportunity for a new life. But anybody that did something to me, justice for them or whatever you want to call it, it's an important point. Because if we don't address this issue, we will come in as victims and we will remain victims and it will interfere in our own recovery. And that's why I bring it up. My older brother didn't have much of a chance for another reason. He had a little bit of pride, and it seems to be a commodity that we can't afford a luxury in this outfit. Twenty years ago now or so, he lived in a castle outside Stockholm, had a beautiful family, you know, and, and, uh, and that's how it was twenty-some uh, years ago. For eighteen years ago, for eighteen years he defended his right to drink. It is something this insidious denial, you know. This fellow, earned 150 grand a year, spoke six languages fluently, carried a Swedish flag in the Olympics on three occasions. For 18 years, he lived in a room that cost 15 bucks a month to live in, drank a fifth of whiskey every night and lived in the past, and there was nothing ever wrong with him. I tried to trust him a few times. His drunk along and mine was pretty similar, and I wrote him a letter a page and a half what I used to be like, and three and a half pages, pages about all the wonders 
that has happened to me since I joined the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I got a postcard back. <laughs> said, Dear John, I'm sorry to hear about all your problems. <laughs> I mean, so much for identification. I flew to Stockholm in 1978 and spent a couple of weeks with him. I invited him out here. I took him to AA meetings. He was here with me for a month, you know, and, uh, and I, he went to meetings with me and we went to some lovely parties. Lynn Wilder, he had a lovely parties at home in Monarch Beach and he met about 150 people now in that house of his and we had a lovely time and, and he stood down with a, a tall whiskey, glass full of whiskey and, and conversed and had a lovely time, you know, and I, I said to him, you know, when we came home, I said, what do you think about this thing? He said, Johnny, you don't understand, I don't want to quit. It's the only thing that's real in my life. I understand. He went home a year later, he died. Yelly Anders. My younger brother has gone through scripts in La Jolla twice. First time was 17, 18 years ago now, and they told him that his liver was shot, he shouldn't drink alcohol anymore. They told him that for 90 days, Carl, you can't drink that booze anymore. He doesn't drink the way I did, and that's all he's looking at. He kind of have six, seven whiskeys before dinner, two kinds of wine, coffee and brandy for dessert. <laughs> it's kind of elegant. Sometimes it's kind of like dining at his place. It's really bullshit the whole deal. And he's still drinking. And sometimes you and I wonder, what's wrong with people like my brothers? There's nothing wrong with it. Alcohol did something for my older brother to the day he died. It's still doing something for my younger brother. And that's the nature of the illness. And that's why I said in the beginning, you and I are the lucky ones because of the evidences in these rooms, like people like you and I, the way we drank and carried on, we can change and live without and have fabulous lives. And that's what the program of Alcoholics Anonymous is all about, how to live good out there without it, you know. You have any problem with hearing back there? Uh, I'm sorry about that, you have to buy the tape. <laughs> I am not accusing Dick Martin and Peggy back there to do this on purpose, you know, but, but <laughs> you know, I just love them both, but, you know, it's, I hope you can hear a little bit, but I sense that the, something is going on. You know, I talk to newcomers. I love the feelings in these rooms when they're newcomers, and I like being a newcomer myself. It's very important to me, and I'd like to share with you why I like to be a newcomer, or remember that time when I was new, when I realized that there was something going on here, and there was a solution here for what we are involved in here with alcohol. And you know, many of us, after we've been around for a while, we forget about it. I hope I never forget it. I, never, I hope I never forget the last year I drank, because I compromised on everything I believed in and stood for. I couldn't live a function without liquor. I didn't dare to go to sleep if I didn't have a fifth of whiskey in the refrigerator, because I had to have it when I woke up. And if I ran out of booze at midnight, I usually call an associate of mine in Baldwin Park, and said, Hal, next week you will owe me $150 on this particular job, but if you give me 20 bucks tonight, you won't have to pay me the $130 next week. And I drove a hundred mile around midnight to pick up $20. I didn't have to buy any booze in Baldwin Park, because then I wouldn't make it home. And when I came home to Anaheim, where we lived at the time, I bought a fifth of Imperial Bourbon for $4.85. And then I was safe and I lived I had to live like that, and I hope I never forget that period in my life. I know some of us, after we get a little well and get a few dollars, our pockets and bedroom privileges again, <laughs> we forget how it really was. In fact, my wife cut me off six months before I came into AA. She really ran out of humor there at the end, I tell you. She stood on look one evening and said, John, I wish you could find us a yourself a girlfriend so I wouldn't have to fool with you. She said, you take forever. <laughs> and 
after sobriety would take forever, it's very commendable. <laughs> it really ain't the fair, folks. I was very sensitive those days. The other reason why I like to remember that time was that Phil Petty talked one Sunday morning. I had about 90 days of sobriety. And he stood up and said, if you keep going to meetings, you will wake up one morning and realize and find out that you can function without alcohol. And it is not necessary to drink anymore and you have a way to go. And I sat in that room and I said, my God, I've experienced those feelings. And it was the first time he had dawned on me that I wasn't hooked anymore. That I had some degree of choice over my own actions. And I had already started to experience a freedom here that I hadn't had it for a long, long time. And I hope I never forget that period in Alcoholics Anonymous. The knowledge that I wasn't hooked, that I was free, I hope I never take it for granted. Those are the two reasons why I like to remember that time. You know, I didn't start to drink until I was 31 years old. Doesn't sound so promising right now, but that's how it was. But I share with you how I was when I was young. The reason why I didn't drink when I was young, when my father died, I promised my grandmother I was never going to drink, so I didn't drink. When I was 19 years old, I'd gone to college a year. The war broke out. I went in the Air Force for two and a half years. And after that, I went back to college for a year and a half, and I was selling at night. I was trying to help my mom. It was very important to me to play the man or the house part because my older brother was different. And I could never figure him and me out in the first place, you know. He was brilliant. He had a photographic mind. He never opened a book. He had A's in everything. I could study the one in the morning. I still failed. <laughs> it really bothered me. Pardon me, it's still bothering me, you know. You know, you know I am very willing. I try real hard and I can be good for a short time. But when the bottom fell out or something negative happened, I couldn't figure out why I was such a screw-up. When I was young, I had an unbelievably inferiority complex. I'm a perfectionist on top of it, not a good combination. I contemplated suicide a lot because I knew if I died, I would be my dad. And you see, when he lived, there was security, prestige, and respect and those things. And I tell you what I did when I was young. I just faked it. I pretended I was really together. I was very noisy and opinionated and uh, that gave me some false courage and that's how I was when I was young. When I was 31 years old, I was employed by this door factory in Alhambra. My boss was alcoholic and taught me how to drink every day. And a new life began for me. It was the most extraordinary period in my life. You know, I never drank before. We had early times at 8 o'clock in the morning, cocktails at 10, martini lunches at 12 to 2.30, made a couple of calls in the afternoon and went back to the office and typed up bits from 6 to midnight and drank whiskey. And I thought I landed in heaven, you know. I used to come home to Karen and say, you know, this building business is out of this world, you know. And you know, I tell you, in retrospect, I drank a fifth of booze a day. For two years, I was never drunk, never hung over. I just felt good. <laughs> and there's something wrong with your system if you can drink that much liquor, you know. I had an enormous capacity, you know. And my emotional being, you know, I mean, as far as I was, how insecure I was when I grew up. And this thing is, I couldn't miss when I had a few drinks in me. I maybe worked two hours a day calling on the big developers. My company's. The company I worked for, they called Prefit Door Company, it was in the 1950s. We were the first people to manufacture pre-hung door openings. And you know, a year later I had sold so many doors they couldn't pay me my commission. So they gave me one third of the stock of the company. It was a terrific time in my life, I guarantee you. You realize my wife, I'm, she was 17 years old when I met her in Stockholm. We come over here in 1948 to start from scratch. And we did, and we worked hard, and we learned English real quick, and a few years later I owned one-third of a door factory. It was a terrific time in my life. And what I'm going to give you now is the highlight of my drinking career. You know, when you own a place, you're a general manager, sales manager, which I was, but I was also a truck driver. I delivered all the doors I sold, and I've never been afraid of work. And my routine those days was... We lived in Corona del Mar in a little house there on the bluff. And I used to be up in Alhambra on Palm Avenue where we had our little plant and I'd 
We manufactured these pre-hung door openings. I loaded this two-and-a-half-ton truck all day and all night. And I came home to Corona Lamar at about 3.30 in the morning, and I was supposed to deliver. I'd got the big contract with American Housing Guild in San Diego, and I was supposed to deliver all these doors before 8 in the morning in San Diego, Claremont Hills. So I come into the little house of ours in Corona Lamar, and Karen had a hot bath ready for me, and I got in the tub down, lit a candle, and inhaled, you know, laid back there, you know, and... She came in there with a pitcher of martinis, sat down and drank martinis with me. 3.30 in the morning, it's really living, you know. And I lay down in that tub and I smoked that camel and I drank that martini and I spit it out the pimento, you know. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and then I usually said, you know, I'm just a little immigrant and I own the goddamn place. Eight years later, they fired me from my own door factory. It was really weird, you know. We have three beautiful girls in the sun, and we took them to church on Sundays. We did everything right to be Americans. The only problem with the church business was the last four years, I was a morning drinker. She usually inspected me down on Sunday mornings and looked at me with those little beady island eyes, you know, and <laughs> sometimes she said, no, not today, you know, and it hurt my feelings. When she took off down the street with the kids in the car and I had to stand there in the corner at home, so I ran down the block after her, screaming and hollering, you know, and my neighbors were outside talking about the lawn problem and here I came running by and, and sometimes they were strangely clad, you know. <laughs> she saw me in the rear view mirror coming after her in my pajamas, so she stopped down the block and waited for me and rolled down the windows and said, What's the matter now, you know? And I said, don't forget to pray for me, you know. And I gave her the finger. <laughs> <laughs> and when I got there, I didn't really fit in, you know. i tell you how it was for those days, you know. Those days, I, I drank around the clock. In the morning, I couldn't drink whiskey right away, so I discovered codeine cough medicine. I drank two double shots of codeine cough medicine and then I, the stomach got calm so I could drink two shots of whiskey and, and I brushed my teeth and walked around with small steps and tried to look effective. <laughs> and when I came to church, I, I really didn't belong. I sat down, looked sincere and hummed a lot, you know. I, I could take the sermon 20 minutes max and then I had to have a drink. 20 minutes into his talk, I just got up and said, oh, screw them all, you know. Then I went home and I drank Grand Scotch those days and played good music and became very spiritual, you know. I played Stan Getz and Dave Rubick and La Boheme and Coleman Hawkins and the big bands, you know, that was my music, you know. Now after sobriety, I even played Pink Floyd and Brian Ferry. I, <laughs> you know, I never had any problem with alcohol until I tried to stop drinking. And uh, one week, Karen says to me, you drink too much. I said, what are you talking about? And I said, you drink way too much booze. So I said, then I quit, and then I couldn't quit. And that's when it all began. Because when I had been off the sauce for a couple of days, I got the shakes. And then two shots of whiskey stopped the shakes. I could function and work. So then I had to con myself into why I had to have a couple of drinks all the time. And then I lied about it, and then I was hiding. From then on, it got worse. When I was into two, three years of my drinking, I was up to two-fifths of whiskey a day. The last year I drank, it didn't matter if I drank a fifth or three-fifths of whiskey a day. I also drank two bottles of codeine and cough medicine every day. Six anisins four times a day, and I was absolutely weird. You know? <laughs> Those, I couldn't get drunk, and that last night, ten months I drank, I couldn't get drunk, and I couldn't get sober. The guilt was on all the time and I was no relief and I just thought I was going crazy. And I probably was. And this is a terrifying time in our life because we can't tell nobody. I was just afraid that she going to figure out how I had to leave the function. I knew they were going to put me away somewhere. And sometimes we talk here about the alcoholic loneliness. And as far as I'm concerned, there's nothing like it because it is a total isolation. And we drink to live and we know we are dying, there's no way out of it, and that's how it is. 
Two years after the shakes began, weirder things happened to me when I stopped drinking. One morning at four o'clock, I sat straight up in my bed and looked in front of me, and this big white snake came out of the wall. <laughs> you know, I never saw anything like it in my life, it was unbelievable. He came right out of the wall. He was snow white, had three black eyes. He was this big in diameter on his fattest bone, he was 23 feet long. And he came slowly across the room, stopped right in front of my face and started to hiss at me. You know. I could even smell it. Kind of a peraltai, sweet mortality. It was like the smell of death, you know. And I sat down and said to myself, you know, you know, I, I haven't had a drink for three days, so it can't be the booze. The closer he came, the more I screamed. And the noise in my head for my own scream reached such a crescendo, it was eventually like my brain exploded for my own screams. It finally just said, Poof, and then I blacked out and fell back. That was my experience with it. Karen told me in the morning, she said, something strange happened this morning around 4 o'clock. She said, you sat straight up, looked in front of you for quite a while, and then you said, hee. <laughs> It's really a trip and a half, you know. One night I made love to her when she wasn't even there. And that's kind of tricky. She was actually laying two feet away from me there. And, uh, she said, what are you doing over there? And I said, I beg your pardon, you know. When she realized what was going on, she started to laugh at me. I started to cry. I felt it was so humiliating to laugh at the guy who was doing his best, you know. In the morning, I had been out in the kitchen. I'd had my Cody and Kaufman's in my whiskey. And she met me in the hallway and said, well, good morning, lover boy, you know. <laughs> I didn't feel any pain, I just smiled at So that's the best piece I've had in a long time, you know. You know? <laughs> and so it goes, you know. Needless to say, I, I love laughter in Alcoholics Anonymous. To me, that in itself is a spiritual experience. Anything that you and I have laughed a little bit about tonight was absolutely the deepest tragedy when it happened. But when you and I, in this man of identification, when it comes to this insanity and this denial, can just laugh about the whole mess. It makes it possible for us to forgive ourselves and change. And it's very much part of the recovery program of Alcoholics Anonymous. We started over many times, and every time I had the best of intention, and every time it got worse. And like you heard this morning, one time when we could drive to Palm Springs and start over, you know, Karen had a suicide attempt there, you know. And uh, she locked herself in the bathroom and drank hundred aspirins down and said, I can't live like this anymore. I'm going to commit suicide. And I laid on that bed in that motel room, a hotel room in Palm Springs, and hoped to God she would die so she wouldn't have to be with, me, be with me anymore. Because I knew at that time in my life there was no way out of it for me because I had really tried. Two years after that, I came into Alcoholics Anonymous. And you can draw your own conclusion of those two years when my guilt connected with it. It was the same year my partners asked me to resign from my door factory, you know. And uh, they just came and said, you know, will you, will you resign? I just signed off, you know. Mind you, this is my means of income, you know. And uh, when they just asked me, I just signed off. I said, who needs this headache anyhow? Now I can just drink and be happy. And that's how it is. He'll take everything that's near and dear to us before we, before we can uh, have something to, to happen to us here, you know. Uh, I tried several things to get sober before I came into Alcoholics Anonymous. When I grew up, I had 13 years, two hours a day of religious education. I swore on the Bible one time in front of my wife and kids. I said, I swear to God I'm never going to drink again. I've never broken my word of honor to you, you know. And I thought if I use this thing that means so much, maybe I can stop. 
Two weeks later, I was drinking again. I went to that minister for counseling every week for an hour for 18 months, and I leveled with him. And he told me one night, he said, you have to ask God to help you, you know. And I said, Walter, you are a good man. I'm not. You don't talk to your wife the way I talk to mine in evenings when she looks a little strange at me, you know. And, uh, and uh, so he, God wasn't, he doesn't want to have anything to do with me. And then he's, he suggested a program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I had no idea what this meant, Alcoholics Anonymous. When he wouldn't talk to me anymore, I went to a psychologist in Santa Ana. I spent $2,000 with this doctor. That wasn't anything he said to me that Karen didn't tell me for free three times a day. <laughs> that wasn't anything he said to me either that wasn't the truth. Everything he said was the truth, you know. And, uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, he, one day he stood on said, you know what's wrong with you, John? And I said, tell me, Doc. And he told it all, all my emotional problems and everything, the whole thing about me. And I said, Doctor, you're absolutely right. And that's why I drink, because I can't stand myself the way I'm put together either. So then he laid on me, I hurt my wife and my kids, so what do you do then? You do what I did, I went on the wagon. And the tragedy with that, at this stage of the deal, is simply this. More sober we become, the more we realize that we hurt our loved ones. And that in itself drives us back to drinking again, because that's the only way we know to get out from under the guilt. And so it is. There's a lot of capable people in the field of alcoholism today, but I sure don't envy them, because the nature of the illness is still the same today as when I came in. As long as alcohol is doing something for us, it's impossible for anybody talking out of using it. And that's the nature of the illness. And that's why I said in the beginning, you and I are the lucky ones because of the evidences in these rooms. And uh, the last Christmas I drank, you know, I, I made my last effort to stop drinking. I came home there on 1st of December and said to Karen, Karen, if I only had a dapple gray Arabian horse, I think I could stop drinking, you know. And, she looked a little strange at me, but I bought this beautiful dapple gray Arabian horse. And we had to look at the picture, you know, it was very important to me. Drove up to the London shop in Beverly Hills and bought my outfit. <laughs> you should have seen me. Beautiful Stetson hat and a Harris tweed jacket and English yacht purse, Spanish cane, and I wore my father's monocle, you know. I looked really good, you know. <laughs> The horse had an English saddle and a kimber with bit special reins of stirrup and a martingale. You know what a martingale is? A little leather strap that goes from the cinch and there's two chrome rings where the reins go through. I tell you, we look good. I spend a lot of money there. I was sober with that thing for a day and a half. The second day I had a bunch of martinis for lunch and I fell off the horse too, you know. So, And uh, then came that last ultimatum she said to me that day that for years because of the children we have stayed together but now because of them we have to part and either you go down and try to think all alcoholics and on or else you have to leave again and I'd been kicked out before so I came walked down I drove down to the Talona club in Anaheim so I wouldn't be kicked out there was a lady behind a coffee bar said do you have a drinking problem I said no Get along just famously with her. Can you do something for my wife? She's crazy, you know. <laughs> and that's how it is when we come in. And we don't know it's going to work. And we got to cover on. But I tell you, if I had known how sick I was when I came in, I would never have stayed. Stopping drinking wouldn't have fixed that. And what I'm talking about now is really by the grace of God. If you and I had known exactly how bad it is when we come in, we would do something much more drastic. But there's a line in the big book that covers, well, more will be revealed. And thank God for that line. And by the grace of God, everything happened to me the next day. I woke up in the morning, I went out in the kitchen, drank a little codeine coffee medicine and a couple of shots of whiskey, brushed my teeth and drove down to the Alana Club and polished off a pint of Seagum 7. Came in there and asked them to call my wife and tell her I'm here already. And I, then I stood out and told him why I couldn't be alcoholic. I mean, how in the hell can I be an alcoholic? I live in a beautiful home with a swimming pool. I have three automobiles and an English bulldog. I have a horse parked on the street. I play a little music and fantasize a little bit, and that certainly can't be alcoholism. 
And there was a couple of guys there and said, that son of a bitch will never make it, you know. <laughs> and then I went out to him, had four martini, double martinis for lunch and came back and had a call over the second time to show how sincere I was. And then I should go home and, you know, and say I've been to AA three times that day. But that was this guy having standing there and listened to me in the morning. And he said, Yoni, why don't you come home to me and let us talk? I said, okay. <laughs> it was so pathetic, I tell you. You know, I, I hear many people in this podium in a way, I rebuild against everything, you know, to everybody going to screw themselves. I never did. You know, I tried the best I knew all my life, and it spe still beat me in every area of my life. It really is discouraging. So when Charlie Rick was his name, he became my sponsor, he 12-stepped me, and uh, we sat in his patio and he told me his story. And that's what I think is important in Alcoholics Anonymous, one drunk talking to another and the identification between the two. And when he was true with his story, I realized he was worse than I was and he depended more than I did on it and he was sober. And I said, you were really like that and you don't have to drink no more? And he said, that's true. And I knew he was telling the truth. But I tried to wiggle out on one way. I said, you don't understand, Charlie. Right? stop drinking, I get the shakes, and weird things happens to me when I stop drinking. And he said, Johnny, you will only shake for four or five days, and then you never have to shake again as long as you live. And I didn't know. I said, Jesus, what information this guy's coming up with here, you know. And uh, then he told me uh, the, the disease of alcoholism. He called it an allergy of the body, coupled with the obsession of mind. He said, the first drink is a mental one to make you comfortable. And then the body takes over and craves more food, and you cannot control your drinking pattern or your behavior. But, so things made a little bit of sense to me that afternoon. I was right. And when they read portion of chapter 5 that we heard here this evening, I said, please, God, help me today to stay sober. And it wasn't a big deal, you know. I always thought the spiritual experience would be something like, kaboom, yes, John, what can I do for you, you know. <laughs> But it wasn't like that at all. It was merely a feeling. And my thoughts were these, that perhaps after all this, dies away for me too. When I came home that night, I said to Karen, I said, you know, it happened to me tonight. I don't know. I don't have a drink no more. And she said, your eyes look different. I haven't had a drink. Or any codeine, cough medicine, or strange pills, funny cigarettes since that day. And 30, 35 years and 11 months and 12 days ago today, you know. <laughs> and you all knew, you must sit down and say to yourself, it must be easy for you to have all that time on the program. But it wasn't easy then and that's what we are dealing with right now. You know, I was not a great success when I came in here. I had a lot of anxieties about my kids. I wanted to be a good father. I knew I wasn't most of the time. I was $36,000 in the hole. They were all small bills and all due. And Karen's suicide attempt absolutely drove me crazy. It's very hard to live with yourself when you realize that you are broken and not a human being spirit. But I didn't drink and I went to meetings. And that's all I had going for me for quite a while. But I just like to tell you all new. Those first two months of my sobriety, I couldn't handle nothing. When the phone rang at home, I just pointed at it. I said, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and I split and hid in the closet. I sat on the floor in my closet and wept. I was scared to death about those phone calls. I sat in the, had about 10 days of sobriety. I sat in a stag meeting and blurted it out. I said, you guys don't understand, but I feel so damn guilty. And that was an old time I said, the reason you feel so guilty is because you're guilty. <laughs> and there were guys like that that saved my life. And for the first time I could admit it was my fault without reservation. You know, as long as we pin it on somebody else or something, else, nothing can happen to you. But I just came to the conclusion whatever I had done or she had done or what she had said, it didn't matter, you know. I, I, I could accept the fact that it was my deal here, you know. And uh, so, and I, I also understood it, that I couldn't drink no more. 
I could never go back to drinking again. No matter what, I couldn't escape the booze. I had done enough damage, I had no more rights when it came to liquor. Whatever was coming my way, I just had to face the music, but I couldn't split with booze anymore. So I'd actually taken the first two steps in this program and didn't know it. But how do you turn your wheel in life over to care of God as you understand it? What's the spiritual experience in these rooms? Well, that happened to me moments later the same evening. As I stood out alone and afraid, this guy came up to me. I never saw him before. And he comes over and put his arm around me and said, Johnny, don't worry. Everything is going to be all right. And I believed him. And that's how it began from a higher power with me. It was just like those guys had my welfare taught, and I just trusted them. And they talked to me in a fashion I never experienced before because they didn't point fingers. There was no judgment. They just shared our own experiences from heart to heart. And this love and this care that goes on in this room is really the most healing commodity that we can offer being. It suits us back to good health, and it gives us a God of our very own. And it can, it's here for everybody. Nobody is excluded. I had about, and Karen, she didn't believe I was going to stay sober when I came in. It took two years of sobriety before she realized I meant business. And you know, we come in here and we helped her with believers, but I understood another thing. She didn't dare to believe it. You know, the last four years I drank, I was in the wagon several times, and every time we made up and became friends, I always went back to drinking again. So she didn't dare to believe I was going to stay sober. And you see, when it comes to trust, it's nothing we can demand. It's something we have to earn. And that's what the day of the time is all about. And besides that, there's a lot of stuff that's going on between you and me in these rooms. We'll come in here and they say, you're doing fine. Hang in, that's going to get better. And we have this whole support group here and we don't have to go through nothing alone anymore. It's incredible. I had 60 days of my sobriety when my sponsor said, sobriety got to be the number one in my life. And I said, no, my children's come first. I love them all in my own life. And Charlie said, well, without sobriety, you won't have them. And you have a letter in your pocket to prove it, which was true because I was kicked out at the time. And I said, well, then my business, I got to pay them bills. And Charlie said, you know, you drank up a door factory. You're 36 grand in the hole right now. If you don't stay sober, you're going to blow whatever you're doing now. And every yabbit I came up with, you plugged it. And I really, it's true. Without sobriety, I don't have a chance at all. And he said, then there's no conditions on sobriety. I said, what do you mean no conditions? If she could forgive me, my job started to go better, I could consider this damn thing. And Charlie said, there's no conditions on sobriety because one of the conditions you come up with might not come true. Then you blame AA for it and go out and drink again. And ladies and gentlemen, for one reason or another, I bought the package. So now sobriety is the number one in my life. There's no conditions on sobriety. Then something spiritual happens to us here in these rooms because I tell you how it was in my life after 60 days of sobriety. You know, I'm up early and go to work early. And Karen meets me in the hallway and said, well, before you had a boost as a crutch, now I have those damn meetings. Are you that kind of a weakling you can't stand on your own two feet? I said, I suppose so. <laughs> And then I go out and I work all day. And then I come home at quarter after five to have a bite to eat before I go to my meeting. There's 25 phone calls about the people I owe the money to. And I was absolutely paranoid about that. I hadn't even started to get an income after 60 days of sobriety. And you know, and the, the people that come in the way I was coming in, you know, you can't write a check for $36,000 and say, here it is, Buster, shove it and don't bug me anymore. You know, I couldn't make a deal because I had no money and I had no income. And I used to say to Charlie, I said, Jesus, Charlie, they want my money. And he said, no, they want their money. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and to make a long story short, ladies and gentlemen, I went on a strict budget and I worked and I'm bought money orders twice a month when the income came in and it took me four and a half years to pay that back. I was, there was no resentment after that. I bought my freedom. It was a very important immense in my, in my program here, you know. I bought my own freedom. So then I had a bite to eat that night. 
And then I go to my meeting and I have a pre-earphone I want to have. And then I come home at 10.30 supposed to thank God for my sobriety that day. And I lay down in my bed and I said, God, what a terrible day I've had. What an absolutely terrifying day I've had. I said, yeah, but I didn't drink. I said, what's going on here? I used to get drunk over a lot less. And then I realized that this thing called sobriety, it's mine. It's my own. It's the only decent thing that has happened to me in a long time. It must be some sort of a gift or something. And then begins the consistency in our living and then we add to it. And from now on everything is God's business, good and bad. And if he is part of the bad stuff, the bad stuff must just be a period within a period. And we are going through that period, we realize why we had to go through and it all started to make sense. So this thing called sobriety, that's the big deal here. Many people say, when will my ship come in? <laughs> this is the ship. <laughs> but I some more to it than that. The admission and the acceptance is part of that gift. Except in chapter three, we have to concede to our innermost self, the alcoholic, that's the first step of recovery. The admission and the acceptance of the sobriety itself, those three things to me is a divine intervention because nine out of 10 alcoholics never make it because they don't buy what I'm talking about. Nine out of 10 alcoholics either die or crazy from this illness because they don't buy what I'm talking about. Nine out of 10 alcoholics have periods of sobriety, in and out of care units, in and out of treatments, and in and out of meetings of alcoholics because they don't buy what I'm talking about. It's a fact. And then now we have addicts alcoholics today. What's the difference? And heroin addict doesn't identify with the people on coke. The people on coke feel, feel superior to alcoholics for one reason or another. Maybe the price tag have a little bit of snob appeal, I don't know. <laughs> and they say if I had a program like Alcoholics Anonymous, Coke Anonymous, Narcotics, and I have a lot of credibility to do, have a lot of success stories, a lot of people staying off that stuff, but what's wrong with us? Why is it only one out of ten of us that have a consistency in sobriety? It's like Clancy said, my case is different. I don't really identify like alcoholics like them. It's a fact, you know. And I stood out at night and I looked down and I realized, I said, why was I so lucky that I saw it and grabbed and ran with it? Why didn't my brothers, they needed us as much as I did. How many people have you and I tried to 12-step over the years that don't want what we got? It's incredible. You know? And again, one little thing more about addicts, alcoholic. What is the difference? An addict is trying to get out of reality. You and I are trying to fit into reality. But the recovery program is the same. Total abstinence in the 12 steps. And I have watched you addicts now for over 30 years, and you don't seem to drink a hell of a lot better than we did, you know. <laughs> So, join what you're supposed to join, you can't beat this rat, you know. So, here I have this, my AA life is right, my sobriety is right, my work starts to go better, my kids come home from school and say, hi dad, can we talk? Well, they are in place. Every day you and I are stirring sober, life is getting better in spite of us. And there have been days in my life, in my sobriety, the only thing that was right that day was I, I didn't drink that day. And it's worthwhile to fight for, you know. And then two years later, Karen came to me and said, Johnny, it wasn't always your fault. I said, now I can die, you know. <laughs> Long ago, she said, you know, this life we live today is really is the most fabulous adventure. It was so hopeless and tragic at one time it's completely turned around. There's even a degree of innocence between us today. And that's almost impossible to believe. But that has come to pass because she is just as busy now on as I'm in AA. You know, we have seen so many people turn around and start to be good to one another. Nothing is in vain. All that bad stuff is going to benefit somebody else down the line, so don't even worry about it. And sometimes you and I wonder what amends can I make to the loved ones to straighten all out. There's no profundity here. Has nothing to do with intention, promises. We can't bribe them no more. Doesn't matter how 
many good things you and I do. When we come home drunk, it's all canceled out. It means nothing. The only amends we can make to ourselves and our loved ones is to stay off the booze a day at a time. The rest of the program will follow little by little, but we got to start somewhere, you know. Now, my first obstacle was the, the inventory. Charlie said, you have to take your inventory. I was 14 months over then. I said, it won't make a damn bit of difference. And he said, Johnny, if you don't take your inventory, you ain't going to stay sober. And I had such a bad attitude, I said, I'm going to prove to them that it doesn't make a damn bit of difference. So I wrote my inventory. And then I told Charlie about it. And the strangest thing happened, you know, when I, when I had taken my fifth step with Charlie. I had a deep feeling that I had fulfilled the contract for sobriety. I didn't have to worry about getting drunk anymore. I had also a feeling that God had forgiven me. Another thing that came up through the inventory, you know, I, Karen and I had problems, you know. She had, you know, she had her problems that she faced. And I realized that if I should point them out and be on her case, she would have to defend it more so. She would even going to get worse instead of better because she had to defend it more. So when we came, when it was come to that, I didn't have to act on it. And, uh, few months later, when, when I hadn't brought things up and started to fight, you know, her fear about that got less and less, and then she talked to her sponsor about it, and then she got her freedom. That was another thing I saw through that inventory. I saw my defects of character and shortcomings. I said, I have areas in my life, the same areas, when I was 12, 13, 17, 18, 21, 22, 31, 30, the same areas throughout my life, and I said, God, it seems to me that I have denied all my life that I am like this. And I realize now that this is precisely who I am and what I am, and I cannot do anything about these, about myself. And therefore I give them to you, and you can remove them in your time and your terms. And that's the pulse and nature of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. There is no intellectual solution to an obsession. There has to be God could and would if he was sought have to have that in our thing to recovery, you know, and uh, it's fabulous. The, the next or the biggest deal I Jack covered it so beautiful last night about the resentments. I had a resentment about my older brother and what my resentment was this, that I couldn't understand why he hated me the way he did, because he did. He was only a year, nine months older than I was, you know, but he couldn't, he couldn't, he didn't I, he hated me. You know, when he was 12 years old, he was six foot four, he weighed over 200 pounds. And he used to punch me out and I rolled under the dining room table and pretend I faint so he wouldn't hit me anymore. I was no match for him, you know. And, uh, you know, and like I say, he had a photographic mind. He was a brilliant guy, high IQ, you know, and he spoke six languages fluently and, it, and he was something else, you know, but he hated me. He became a a water polo player. He was in the Olympics in water polo and gymnastics three times. He carried the Swedish flag in the Olympics three times, you know. But here it was, when I was 13 years old, he was 15, I was out in the ocean, 15 feet depth, and he grabbed me by the hair and drowned me. And I tell you something, it's a terrible thing to drown. And I sat down, was working on my resentment, I said, how can I deal with this thing? I have to forgive him. And I said, I gotta, you know, and I tried to serenity prayer. I felt like a damn fool, you know, a hypocrite. And I asked for help and they said, try to understand your resentment. And then I thought it was a fluke. I turned it around and I said, why did he hate me? And you know, the strangest thing happened. I realized what it was. You know, when we were little, three and five years old, my father favored, father favored me. And I assure you, when I was three years old, I was absolutely adorable. <laughs> and my dad, honey, he used to lift me up and hug me and kiss me, you know. And, and my older brother, he was obese. And he was not the lap baby. And I can still remember how he stood up beside me when my father lifted me up and down and hugged me. And what about me? And that just everything fell in place. That's the whole thing. 
I was in the way. He needed more in love than I did. He was such an introvert and such a serious guy. And there I sat that night and looked at his life and my life. I he had one obsession in his life, and that was he wanted to get the approval from our father. You know, at that time of his life, he lived in this castle house of Stockholm. He was in charge of Semper Drubber factory from Australia and the old Scandinavian country. You know, he was a fabulously successful guy. And he had one obsession, and it was to, what, to get the approval from our dad, and he couldn't get it. And I sat down, and I wondered, how can I get this straight between us? He doesn't I realize that he doesn't have to worry about me anymore. Then I hadn't heard from him then for 15 years. The next day I got a long letter from him. And point for point what I had been thinking about the night before, he had put it down in, in writing, you know. You remember when we were at age group how we could glorify our great father's name and, and so and so and I said, there it is. He just asked for approval he can't get it because he died when he was nine. So I just wrote this little note and I said, Matthew, if our father would have been alive today, he would have taken you in his arms and said, you have succeeded beyond my greatest expectation, your loving brother John. You know, I haven't had a resentment since. But you know, there was something happened out that I never counted on. I lost my inferiority complex. You know, these surrenders that you and I understand one thing, I'm not a loving, wonderful guy. I was full of venom about this thing. I hated him as much as he hated me. And he thanks to that I had to surrender if I wanted to stay sober. All this thing came through here. And I thought, we are so fortunate, you know, that we have to go to that extent of surrenders to find this freedom in life, you know, and living. Now, so, now I have to wrap up this thing, you know. I, uh, you know, Chuck Chamberlain, all the years he lived amongst us, trying to show us what's going on in these rooms. It's called love with no conditions. Love with no conditions. You and I can be who we are and what we are, and in spite of it, we are loved. There is nothing like it on the face of this earth. And then this ism we have, it makes us belong. We belong to each other. There is a sense of belonging in these rooms that is just haunting. It's a fact and reality. Alone, we cannot do it, but together we can. The room, the group, the fellowship will carry us when we can't care for ourselves. It's a beautiful thing what's going on between you and me. I like to say to you that when I was 13 years old, I used to sit out and look out over the ocean in Sweden. And I had intentions and anticipations and dreams. I'm 76 years old now. In fact, a couple of days I'll be 77. And I see, leaving Laguna Beach and I look out over the ocean there every day. You know. I have intentions, anticipations and dreams. And I'm extremely vulnerable. And I thank God for that sensitiveness that you and I have. The sensitiveness that I used to curse. What's the matter with me? Why do I overfeel in all the... What the hell is the matter with me? That sensitiveness, when we practice the principles of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, will become a blessing because it will function like a thermostat and it will motivate us to take the action it's laid out in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. The action we take sets us free. Chuck Chamberlain, you say, you can't think yourself into good living. You have to live yourself into good thinking. It's the action we take that sets us free. But Chuck said another thing. He said, you know, life is tough, and life deals us blows, and sometimes even we longevity, we get into the negative and the fear, and that has to do with the distance from God we are. But he said, you know, self is involved here. It's actually a conscious separation from God, and conscious implies that I have something to do about that. And there again, the action I take sets me free. You all knew, all of us when we come in, we have a little problem with the God business. Think about it this way. Your will, my will. You know, we, we wonder about that. Abstinence is a spiritual environment. It isn't, it isn't natural alcoholics not to drink. As long as you and I have abstinence, we have a chance. We sit there in these rooms and we identify. We have moments of clarities here. As long as you and I have abstinence, we have a sponsor and so on and so forth, then we go to these rooms. Things happen in these rooms, you know. 
And think, when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, they said that alcoholism was the number one killer in this country. It's the second contributor to insanity. It's a pretty serious deal. That's what you and I are dealing with. But thanks to this program, this way of life, by coming here and we help one another, we live out there where the conflicts were, where we used to get in trouble. We fit in there. We be part of it. I'd be so bold to say that, you know, we live out there like we don't have the illness. Tell that to somebody that have heart and cancer. You and I are no victims. We have an opportunity here to participate in life and living, thanks to this way of life. You know, you all knew. If you can just believe this, we only wish you well. And we only want good things for you. If you can just believe that and take that with you, you will never wake up lonely anymore because you know by now there is a way to go and to live. I cannot for a moment believe that God would take us through all those things and then bring us in here and show this way to live if he didn't have any plans for us. It really wouldn't make any sense at all. So you all knew. Do this. Do what we do. Don't drink and come to meetings. It's the best deal in town. Thank you.